Hi, everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is show number eight for Wednesday, September 30th, 2009. Once again, I'm Paul Fox. And under the same moon, I'm Kevin Ma. And we're here to talk to you about the latest uh, news and events and happenings in the world of Hong Kong cinema, Asian cinema, and cinema from around the globe. Uh, but before we get started, let's get caught up on uh, anything that's new. So, Kevin, anything new with you? Um, yeah, I just did a film shoot for a classmate or a year two student. Um, I don't know if you guys saw it on my Twitter. I was mentioning because uh, this German classmate of mine, he decided to uh, stream the entire shoot live via the Internet so you could watch us on set while he's shooting. Um, and, you know, Paul, did you get to catch the stream? Yeah, I, um, I caught the Saturday stream for a little while. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot happening at that time. There was uh, basically uh, two of the actors kind of sitting at the desk and they were uh, moving the lights around, doing some lighting arrangements. But I, I remember I posted a question at one point, And I'm not sure if it was you or one of the other guys who answered. But I was saying, you know, that the record were they recording the stream? And they said they were. And I guess they're they're going to be integrating it into sort of a making of aspect as well, which I think is kind of neat because then you get, you know, people who've popped into the stream and maybe left comments, um, you know, may, may actually be part of the making of somehow. Yeah, it was a lot of fun because <clears throat> um, what happened was that we had a laptop there with the webcam and then um, the director had his friend hooked the computer up on the internet with a cell phone. So literally live and we could actually interact with people who were watching and um and if there was sound i don't know if you could hear any sound from the set i was for a while i was narrating you know really your voice so that was fun it was a lot of fun for me. So now we've got looming before us uh, a holiday, uh, actually two holidays within the next three days. So any big plans for your holiday celebrations, Kevin? Um, no, because I still have to go work on Friday, and then uh, I'm helping my girlfriend move the weekend, and uh, hopefully sometime in the middle I'll get some writing done. So no rest for the wicked. Yeah, yeah. I'll be. You, I think I'll be spending a bit of time. Uh, Killing Zombies on the Xbox and uh, watching a couple of films here and there. And of course, I have to go back to work. It's kind of weird because you've got the National Day tomorrow on Thursday, and then uh, we have to go back to work on Friday, and then we've got Mid Autumn Festival on Saturday. And, you know, there's family obligations and things that go along with, with that holiday. So, uh, vacation, yeah, but it's still going to be kind of busy. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on and start talking about some things. So uh, as we were just talking about, and the biggest uh, news here locally is the National Day holiday. Um, not a whole lot of people locally, at least uh, those that I've talked to among my students and friends, um, not too many overly excited uh, about this holiday. How about you, Kevin? Do you feel more patriotic suddenly? No, I think that the TV station and the official... Um, version of things certainly make things more exciting than it really is here. There is going to be a fireworks display in Hong Kong, but uh, I hear because of the weather, they might have to lay it. You know, it tells you if you're, if you're religious, it tells you something. But um, for me, no, I'm not really 
all that excited. If you look at my Facebook, I put up a video um, of a song by a indie band called My Little Airport called I Love the Country, Not the Party. Mm. So, <laughs> um, so you know, you know, you know my stance. Yeah, I think I think that's a similar sentiment. I mean, uh, most of the students and friends that I've talked to, they're really just you know they're happy to kind of have a day off to catch up on work or to relax or to sleep in. Um, but in talking to them, I don't think any of my students are planning to go see the birth of a Republic tomorrow. Um, you know, so when I told them that I was probably going to see it, they were, <laughs> their jaws kind of dropped and they were like, why? Oh, but you should tell them we were going to watch it at dynasty. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's, that's part of the experience. So, all right. Well, besides uh, national day, we've got uh, mid autumn festival coming up also. And we'll talk a little bit more towards the end. Uh, when we get to our video picks about some films uh, that are sort of related, uh, have a holiday theme to go along with that holiday. Uh, but for now, move on. We'll move on. And um, Kevin, you wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, movie Prince of Tears. Yes. Uh, any Academy members listening from America, listen up. Um, the Hong Kong submission, uh, Prince of Tears, is um, supposedly getting a one week run here in Hong Kong to qualify for the um, qualify for the Academy Awards. But what they're really doing is they are advertising it that is playing at this one theater. But when you get to the theater, you will see that it's all been sold out. And what this one theater is doing also is that they're essentially treating all these seats as really sold as real real income and then they're putting on a box office chart. So this was done this uh, last year, also Painted Skin. Uh, this was also done last year for to get claustrophobia into the Hong Kong Film Festival. I mean, the Hong Kong Film Awards. So, um, if yeah, any Academy members listening, I just want to tell you this: that that uh, is not a very righteous move or a righteous method they're using. So now, when when you say they're buying out the theater, um, this is basically a case of the film itself probably not even being screened. Or are they gonna? Do you think they'll be giving away tickets or having private screenings just for maybe the filmmaker and close friends? Yeah, that's what happened to Claustrophobia last year. They played it uh, one night, I think one show a night at one theater, and essentially these industry people all got invited. You know, it was essentially like a public relations thing where the directors show up, the bosses show up, they hide to their buddies, they all watch the movie. But what this sounds like here is because they're playing five shows a day for seven days in a row. It, and I haven't heard anything about tickets being passed around or anyone actually catching the movie theatrically. So I think what they're doing is just, just pretending this is all happening. Hmm. Well, that's a shame. I mean, it'd be nice if, uh, if you could get included or we, we could somehow manage to have contacts to get in to see it, but I guess we'll have to wait like all the other people and buy our tickets whenever the film is released normally. Well, it's sad because it's that these kind of loopholes, when people find out about it, it just sort of undermines the movie because claustrophobia I thought was good, but then this thing, this loophole they were using again to film awards always kind of bothered me. Yeah. So, you know, I think it really undermines the actual quality of the film. Let's move on to some global news, and first we want to talk about the movie City of Life and Death, which won pretty big at Spain's uh, San Sebastian Film Festival, taking uh, the top award and an award for cinematography. Um, now, I haven't seen this film yet, Kevin. Have you seen it? Ah, uh, yes. Um, 
Honestly, I, I liked it very much from a cinematic point of view, but I know some Chinese people who don't like it. And I myself have some problem with the, the way the script is structured, but I think, yeah, cinematically it's quite well made, sort of cinematography. Yeah, now, now the buzz around this film from people that I know that have seen it who have talked with me about it is that um, it's a fairly, supposedly a fairly even-handed look at the events in Nanking. Um, you know, this is a, this is a somewhat famous, notoriously famous event. Um, it's been documented by, for example, Irish Chang's book, uh, The Rape of Nanking. Uh, this is sort of a rallying point for nationalism for a lot of groups in China. Um, it, it, was your impression that this film was, you know, fairly even handed in its presentation of that period? Or uh, did, um, you, did you come away with a different impression? I think it was very brave of the director Lu Tron to take uh, a, this Japanese soldier and make him essentially the main character of the piece. But uh, the character itself, or the Japanese side, is not really evenly portrayed because you either have this one protagonist who is very wooden and just looks at everything happening, doesn't do anything, or the other Japanese soldiers are really violent and essentially really sadistic. And then, you know, you got the Chinese people who stand up and we would never perish and we have these big dramatic scenes and then things like that. So, you know, I think it tries to create the illusion that it is even handed, but I think at some point even a director doesn't even know what it stands is or what what is even handed. Okay. And let's move on to our next piece. Uh, Kevin, you want to tell us a little bit about Maggie Chung and possibly making a career change? Yeah, apparently Maggie Chung was um said in an interview that she is talking with a Norwegian producer to release uh, an album. Um, now, it's in the 90s or early in the 80s, this wouldn't be strange because Chiron Fat had an album, Tony Learn had an album. So it wouldn't be surprised if Maggie Chiron did an album at the time. But no, she waited until now because she said she, she was never really comfortable saying until she did um, a movie named Clean. Have you seen Clean, Paul? No, I haven't, sang- I haven't seen it yet. I've heard yeah, good things about it. it. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but apparently she sang four songs in the movie and she ended up really starting to like singing. So now she might be releasing an album. Um, no word whether it's in English or Chinese or I guess French yet, but Paul, will you be interested in buying a uh, Maggie Churn? Well, album? I'll have to, I'll have to give it a listen. I mean, um, uh, I'd, I'd have to say that the, the Chinese canto pop and, and Mandarin pop performers that I do like, who've attempted to make English albums, uh, typically the English albums have not appealed to me that much. Um, but, you know, this could be this could be something new. It could be something different, you know. And she's certainly very talented. There, there's no reason why. I mean, there are lots of stars from Hong Kong who've made careers in both areas. Um, I, you know, I'm very old school when it comes to Cantonese music. I, I love Jackie Chung and Andy Lau. And I equally like the films they make. And I, I actually wish Jackie Chung would make more movies because, you know, he hasn't made a movie for quite a while. Um, and I sort of miss seeing him on the screen. But, you know, I, so I think there's no reason why she can't, can't do both. Uh, but again, if, if you're asking me if I'm going to buy the CD, I'll just have to wait and hear the songs. But it, it reminds me uh, back when, was it Hero? was coming out uh, I went to uh, a film talk they were ha- having locally to promote the film that was um, 
I think it was the film critic Thomas Shin who was moderating and and had uh, uh, Cheng Xiu Tong was there, Maggie Chung was there, and Tony Lung were there, and they were all talking. And then like one point, they they sort of moved the focus to Tony Lung, and he was promoting a new Canto pop or Mandarin pop album that he had produced and was releasing around the, the time of the film. And they played like a few tracks from it. And I think you were saying before that he had had one um, and they, you know, they were saying he hasn't, he hasn't gone, done any, any kind of musical thing for a number of years. And so here he was back again uh, making this release. But uh, I, I didn't buy that at the time. It didn't, it just wasn't that appealing to me. So I think this is nothing new, but um, I'll be interested to see what language it's coming out in, if it is coming out in Chinese or English or French, as you said. Yeah, and Mickey Chen has a relatively uh, deep voice, so I wouldn't be surprised if he does a you know, nice, smooth jazz in French. I, mean, I think that's something I might want to check out. Hmm. All right, uh, next bit of news um, is turning out to be a pretty hot topic, uh, at least in the States, uh, along blogs and uh, emails and other, other news outlets. And that is that uh, director Roman Polanski was arrested uh, attending on his way to attend an awards ceremony at the Zurich Film Festival. And so as it goes, he's being arrested on a 30-year charge. Uh, 30 years ago, he was uh, he was found guilty of having sex with a minor, a 13-year-old girl. And there was some miscommunication about a plea deal or something like this, as I understand it. And it, basically, he ended up fleeing the country. And so he's been a wanted man in the United States since then. And basically, living in Europe and continuing to do films and be heralded, you know, for the film work that he's done. And all this time, there's been the law enforcement community has sort of been looking for a way to get back at him. And so they, they grabbed him when he was going to the festival. And most recently, I heard that they, the, the festival released a statement, and they're very upset uh, by, at the Swiss government for allowing this to take place, because apparently they're working with uh, the the law enforcement from the United States. And so he's currently waiting to see, you know, what's going to happen if the Swiss government's going to turn him over and he'll be extradited back to the United States to hold trial. Now, the interesting thing about this case is that um, the victim in question, the girl who, who was 13 at the time, um, has since come out on the side of his defense saying basically to sort of forget about it and just let the thing go. But there's a lot of people um, sort of on the other side who are saying, you know, just because he's a director, just because he's won awards, um, that doesn't mean he's so he gets a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, if this had been a normal person who had committed this crime and, you know, was found, they would be brought back and they would have to go through the legal process. And... I'm kind of, you know, of the of that mind that, you know, okay, yes, he's a great film director, but that doesn't give him an exemption from having to go through the process, you know, of of if if you did something wrong and the law at the, you know, says that you've done something wrong, you have to have to go through that. And there's been a big double standard in a lot of cases in the United States with celebrities 
sort of, you know, skirting around the law based on their celebrity status. You know, people like Paris Hilton, um, OJ Simpson, you know, one of the more famous cases. So I, yeah, that's, I think it's interesting and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, Kevin, what are your thoughts? Do you think, you know, are are you on of the mind that if you do the crime, you do the time? Or do you think that it's just been too long and, um, you know, that they should just kind of let this go? There are more important things that, you know, law enforcement should take care of. Yeah, I think you took the right words right out of my mouth, Paul. Uh, yeah, you do the crime, you do, you do the crime, you do the time. I've never understood the idea of statute of limitations because if you committed a crime and if you haven't paid for it, then pay for it. It doesn't matter how long it's been, especially something as serious as this. It, you know, you know you're guilty. You know, it's not like you, he hasn't been under trial yet. He's been under trial. They, everyone knows he's guilty and he ran off. Yeah. So I don't see any reason why he shouldn't pay for it. But, you know, I do give a little slack because um, because of the, the, the fact that the victim has forgiven him, but he still needs to stand trial in order to clear him of this. And hopefully, finally, after 30 years, away yeah i just have to think that you know from the perspective of a parent you know if i were a parent and i had a 13 year old daughter and i had found out that someone had done this and i I don't think that the passing of 30 years time would make me want to say okay well you know all is forgiven live and let live now apparently he he did make a settlement with the girl i'm not I, i i didn't you know, look that deeply into the case to see what kind of settlement it was, if it was a financial payout or something like that. So there has been a form of restitution, but what this case is really coming down to, I guess, is is to the process of law and if he should be subject to that or not. All right. Well, moving on, we're going to talk a bit, a bit about a topic we touched on last week, and that is the Michael Jackson film. Uh, this is it, and apparently my sentiments are not the sentiments of many people out there, because as this film went on sale, uh, tickets were literally flying out of the virtual ticket vending machines. Um, as I as I just look over some of the numbers, they said that, in, for example, one case, uh, people had queued up for 72 hours to buy the tickets. Um, this is coming uh, from Los Angeles. Um, I think that's off the Los Angeles population. It doesn't have internet. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, I mean, that's something that maybe we can talk about on another show, but have you ever, have you ever queued up for like overnight for tickets for anything, Kevin? Not overnight, but I remember um, when episode one came out, I lined up at the, um, uh, Cornette Theater in San Francisco to buy tickets because that's the theater that the original Star Wars premiered in. So it it, it meant extra to watch. Yeah. So in that theater, you know, it's I, yeah. I, I I guess I've growing up in small towns and and being in the places that I've been, I've never been in a place that's been so populated by fans that I've had had to do that. I remember when I saw Episode One, uh, I went and saw it on the day it opened. I think it was the first show. Or maybe it was the second show, but I was studying. Uh, it was I was back studying at Florida State, and I just went over to the mall, and hardly anybody was there. And I went in, got tickets. You know, the theater was kind of full, 
but there was no like line around the block. There was no people camping out. So I guess, I guess, you know, fandom is different when you get out to the West coast or you get into a really big city in, in New York. And I have seen some people, you know, camp out at Tom Lee here to get, mm-hmm. you know, concert tickets or, or something if there's, but that's usually because there's not that many shows. Um, and, and shows here can, you know, they've only got a couple really big venues and they, those can fill up pretty, pretty quickly. But for a movie, I always find it really amazing, um, that people will do that. So just going out and I guess it's, I guess part of it's social that, you know, you kind of go and camp out with your friends and you send your buddies on food runs and, you know, you take turns holding the space in line or something, but I don't know. I've, I've, I've never had to experience that. So I guess I have a difficulty in trying to conceive of having to do that. This is definitely a bit of a, yeah, a fun thing while, you know, there's a connection with strangers when you lined up or stand with them for six hours. Like I remember when I finally got those tickets, um, I was, I was really hugging the girl that was before me. And, and then some people <laughs> ahead of me because we got tickets, we got tickets in episode one, it's a cornet. Yeah. So yeah, there's, I think there's a special kind of connection and the, fun, the funny thing is with episode one is because I had a friend who he, he didn't line up overnight, but he was like there several hours beforehand um, lined up. And he said, you know, the, the joy and jubilation of being there in the line and having the, t- the ticket in hand was completely stolen by the end of the movie when he was walking <laughs> out. So uh, memories. But anyway, back to Michael Jackson's film. Um, so, yeah, people have been queuing up. Um, According to uh, one bit of news out of London, it said that the film sold like 30,000 tickets within 24 hours. Um, and fans in Japan have purchased over over $1 million uh, worth of tickets within 24 hours. So, you know, this film is going to do gangbusters in terms of business. Um You know, and, and we were talking last week saying, you know, from our perspective, it, we may... Not not that entirely interesting, but I guess there's still a lot of diehard fans out there, a lot of diehard fans out there, for, for and for them, this is something that they're really looking forward to seeing. Um, so I hope, you know, production-wise, that they, they make it a worthwhile experience for those fans. All right, our final bit of news. Um, now, uh, earlier this week, uh, this past Sunday, in fact, uh, it's TV time in the States. Um, so for those of you who probably are, are listening who don't follow a lot of U.S. television, it's a really big time of year because all the new season premieres are starting. Um, I find it a very exciting time, but a very busy time because I have a lot more media to watch and a lot less time to watch it in. But one of my favorite shows is The Simpsons. Uh, they're starting in their 21st season. And they... Um, their first episode was guest written and guest starred in by the actor Seth Rogen, who we were talking about a few weeks ago for his film Green Hornet. And he's basically written this episode, um, which is somewhat mirroring his own, his own experience. Um, and in, in it, basically, the father Homer Simpson is called on by Hollywood to play this superhero role. And because if you know Homer Simpson, the character is a bit fat and, and out of shape. And so they hire this um, this sort of trainer guru to come in and get him pumped up and in shape for the role. And so basically, uh, in, his, in a statement, uh, when in an interview, Seth Rogen said, We wanted to comment on how Hollywood generally ruins these movies. 
The whole joke is Homer is cast to play a guy who's an everyman, and they try to make him into this physically fit guy. Um, and I think it's I think it's kind of interesting because here he is commenting on this process that he's written for this this show, and he himself is you know going through this same process because he's got trainers training him to get in shape for uh, the Green Hornet, and I guess he's considering himself sort of an everyman. And there's been a lot of commentary from, you know, especially Green Hornet fans, people who think that he is just not a really good pick for the role, because typically, if you've seen him in any of his movies, he is a little bit pudgy compared to your typical action hero. Um, you know, if you look at people who are playing the action heroes recently, um, you know, Tobey Maguire and uh, Robert Downey Jr. Jr. sort of got buffed up for his role in Iron Man. Um that he he just doesn't seem to fit that mold, and so Hollywood is trying to make him fit that mold through this training regimen. So he got a chance to sort of comment on this uh, through animation. I uh, don't know if that really is going to make me any more excited to see the Green Hornet when it comes out. I'm still rather disappointed in the casting change and the directorial change. Um, Kevin, what do you think? I think um, Will Sapporoga has no excuse. He's the one who wrote the movie, so I'm sure he must have wrote it himself in mind, and he must have decided, ah, oh, I could play Green Hornet, and to to come out now and to pretend to pretend to, pretend to be an everyman and say, oh no, I just got forced to do this, blah 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 blah. It I don't know. It just seems a very Hollywood hypocritical thinking to me. Some Hollywood idiots hired me to star in a movie. Whoa. <laughs> We have a problem. Fine, I'll get back to the Oscars I stole from the lobby. Do you want the Golden Globe? No. No. But we have a bigger problem. Homer, my brother and I showed this picture of you to a cross-section of typical moviegoers. Not one thought you looked like a superhero. Several people stared at the sun, attempting to blind themselves. Stared at the sun against every animal instinct they had. We need you to slim down, muscle up, and become the everyman people want to be instead of the one they actually are. I don't know if I can. I'm a yo-yo dieter. Yo, hot dog man! Yo, peanuts! <laughs> Why aren't you laughing? Don't you know what yo means? Maybe I can help. Lyle McCarthy. Finally, the answer to my problem. What do you do? He's the trainer to the stars. Here's what Brad and Angelina looked like before they met me. Hmm. They look good with a little meat on their bones. Come with me. Take my hand, Homer, and wave goodbye to fat you. Goodbye, fat me. All right, let's move on. Now, this week we're going to do something a little bit different because we don't have any East Screen films to discuss. Um, there nothing new started locally uh, last week, and we have a bunch of things coming up. But for now, we're going to do something a little bit different, and this is a recommendation coming from some of the comments that we had recently. Um, one commenter going by the um, tag of Pro said that he'd really like to see us talk a little bit more about uh, upcoming films. And so we're not sure if this is going to be a regular feature because, you know, films are only upcoming at one time. So once we talk about an upcoming film, it wouldn't make sense to continually talk about it. 
but we thought that this would might be a good opportunity to discuss some since we don't have a film for East Screen. So we'd use this opportunity to discuss a couple of the upcoming films uh, in the place of East Screen. So, Kevin, what are we going to talk about? Um, first, we're going to talk about The Warrior and the Wolf, the co-production film between China, Hong Kong, Japan, and who knows what other countries. Um, have you heard anything about this film, Paul? Well, I've seen the trailer. Um, I, I saw the trailer yesterday, in fact. And uh looks kind of interesting. Um, casting is interesting, although... Um, I'm not a huge Maggie Q fan, but uh, she she can be okay in in some roles. Uh, but from what I saw of the film, it looks it looks like they're you know they're dealing with some mythology and uh, a little bit of uh, maybe even Western star style, um, you know, werewolf lore at some points. It's still hard to say because it's we've only seen at least I've only seen one trailer, and sometimes they. Play, they play things in a trailer that make something looks a certain way, and then you watch the whole film, and actually, it's not that way at all. Yeah, I've read a review from uh, Screen International that um, it actually explains the film as something of a fantasy um, about a warrior played by Japanese star Joe Nagini. Um, it's about him fighting and becoming a general, and then um, he goes to a village and meets this uh, woman played by Maggie Q, and they fall in love after he rapes her a couple of times or something. And then um, and there's some wolf involved. So essentially, it's a period fantasy, except you have no idea what period it is. This is a very interesting film for me because um, the director is a fifth-generation Chinese director, um, Ken Zhuan Zhuan. Um, I haven't watched much of his films. I don't know if you've you seen any Ken Zhuan Zhuan no, films. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've seen any. None, none yeah, come I, to mind. Yeah, I believe he's known for the Blue Kite and... It, and I feel ashamed to say I haven't seen every film because I took a Chinese new wave course. But anywho, yeah, um, it's premiering at the the uh, Asian Film Festival here in Hong Kong. But the bits I've seen, there's a 10-minute trailer online, and I watched it. And, you know, even though there's some really nice widescreen scenery, and I'm sure the budget was big because this is the Hollywood, it's Hollywood money that's involved. It's the second film in the deal between Echo and Focal uh, Features, the first one being Murderer. Uh, so... But then still, this this usual style of the big wide landscape and the, the the foreign attractive actors and everyone dubbed into Mandarin is just not really appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I hope it's better than murder. I mean, that there will be one for one, not one for two, in those series of three films. But I don't really have much interest. Well, I, I'm for me the jury's still out a little bit. Um, again, I'm intrigued by some of the mythology that they're showing uh, in the trailer, but the storyline, um, you know, it 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 hasn't really drawn me in. Uh, I would say, I, but the you know, Painted Skin ended up having the same the same kind of effect after seeing the trailer for Painted Skin. It 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 appeared to me to be a completely different movie from what it was when I went in the theaters and saw it. And when I went in the theaters and saw it, it was something that I ended up really, really liking a lot. Um, I know a lot of people didn't really care for painted skin, but for me, uh, it was, it was sort of a callback to uh, some of the ghost story films of, of the nineties and the eighties from Hong Kong. So uh, I came out of, of this theater really and having enjoyed it. 
But it was in part because I had this totally different conception of the film going into the theater. I thought it was going to be something completely different. And when when it was different from what I thought it would be, I was very, very pleased by that. So that sort of enhanced my feeling about it, possibly. And I've kind of got the same feeling here. I, I, I think I may have one idea of what uh, this film is going to be, but then I could be completely wrong. Um, just because of the way the trailer is constructed. Well, then we'll probably go and uh, watch it in the movie theater. Maybe in the better theater, I guess. I'll, I'll, ch- I'll take a chance. Yeah. But this is playing in the in the HKAFF. Is that correct? Yes, and Echo, the the the, the company that uh, runs one of the cinema chains, will also probably run it on their biggest screen. So you know, it's a good chance to go. And catch it. I think it opens on October 22nd here in Hong Kong. Any other coming films that we can discuss, Kevin? Yes, in addition to uh, Founding of the Republic, the second film to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Great Sea is uh, the espionage film, uh, The Message. Um, it stars Zhou Xun, um, Zhang Han Yu, uh, I think Li Bingbing. Bing Bing. Your your yes. your favorite Bing Bing. I, li- yes. I like I like the Lee Bing Bing more than the Fan Bing Bing. Yeah. Just just my preference. Just my preference. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I believe the film takes place during the Sino-Japanese War, um, and it's about you know espionage. As far as I know, I heard there's some torture scenes, and it looks uh, really pretty. And one of the directors on the film is Chung Guo Fu, which I believe is the same director who did the supernatural. Thriller, Double Vision, starring Tony Gunn and uh, David Morse. Mm. So, and we just saw the trailer before we started recording. Um, uh, and I, I kind of look forward to it, even though you know when we watch these movies, we know that it's uh, the nationalism is going to be really didactic. But I think the production values and the the idea of a Chinese espionage kind of has me draw. I don't know about you. Well, again, this is as we were talking about on on City of of Life and Death. Um, this is, you know, this isn't that directly related to, you know, World War II, but it's still, you know, it's still about the occupation and as you're saying, there's going to be torture involved and, uh, those things, you know, that they're just not things that really draw me in and say, you know, I have to rush up and watch this movie when it's first released. Although I'm, you know, again, I'm, I do want to see, um, Li Bing, Bing and, that may be enough to draw me in the first week. But, you know, it, it's one of these things. And this is a very particular time period that they seem to be going back to for a lot of films. I mean, uh, going back to um, Ang Lee's film, you know, Lost Caution, you've got a very, you know, that it's that similar time period dealing with um, people who were, you know, Chinese who were working with the Japanese occupation and then Chinese who were, working in sort of the underground against it. Uh, We saw it in uh, Donnie Yen's film, Ip Man. Um, You've got it in City of Life and Death. You've got it again here. You know, I I think that there comes a point when you can overdo a genre. um, And I think that for me, they've started to reach that point with with these films um, coming out of the mainland. And... I you know I think it I think you were right that this does tie tie into nationalism and they're really trying to push these with you know the 60th anniversary and everything 
but I don't know. I just I I I'd really like I'd really like it if we could get past this genre and get on to the next cycle, uh, whatever that will be. Um, because again, it doesn't really appeal to me quite as much as some of the other things that they could be doing. Well, this Chinese Japanese um, antagonistic genre apparently has been a very very long tradition uh, in this media. My friend who lived in Beijing said there was literally one TV channel that essentially showed TV dramas all day that had, you know, that was about the Japanese, the Japanese war, and, you know, the Japanese soldiers, the, the evil, the devil, and whatever. But I don't think you have anything to worry about, Paul, about the historical accuracy, because if it ends with the film with a, with a big text saying that Chinese won the war, then you don't have nothing to worry about, I think. <laughs> well, it, that, that's, that's sort of uh, how they ended Ip Man, if I remember right. correctly. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the performances, uh, the intensity of some of the things that I predict may be going on, though, are are kind of, you know, in the back of my mind saying, maybe I don't want to rush out and see this right away. Um, maybe this will be something I, I may even wait for. Vi- it may be something I might even wait for a video if if I, you know, word comes through that it did that it is pretty intense and it is pretty uh, disturbing in some of what it conveys. And not that there's anything wrong with films doing that. It's just for for myself, um, that particular kind of thing. You know, I can go, I I can watch something that's, you know, totally off the wall, you know, fantasy, something like Painted Skin. They could have put, you know, uh, 10 times the gore in Painted Skin that they they had in there. They didn't really have anything that was that gory. And that wouldn't bother me because I'm, you know, it's, again, it's, for me, it's escapism. It's not rooted in reality, but when stuff's rooted in the reality, it really starts to, um, it really starts to turn me off a little bit. So, well, we'll see. It opens tomorrow, I think, or today in the mainland. I think uh, they're pushing these two big movies in the mainland cinemas. I was checking the cinema website in Shenzhen, and essentially most of the screens are just plain China Republic uh, message. And it opens the fifteenth here in Hong Kong, so I'll, I'll check it out and uh, let you know. Right, well, um, we will hopefully be coming back next week with a lot more to talk about in East Screen. But for now, let's move on to a few West Screen films. Uh, now, Kevin, because you've been out filming and shooting and uh, helping your fellow classmates and being an actor, uh, you haven't had a whole lot of time to get out and see anything. No, I barely have uh, any time to stay in watching. Well, our West Screen pick for this week is called The Time Traveler's Wife. This is a film starring Eric Bana and Rachel McAdams, and it's based on a best-selling book of the same name by Audrey Niffenberger. And it's a pretty interesting concept. Um, it's, this tells the story of a man named Henry who basically uh, has a disease or a condition, a genetic condition, I should say, where he is pulled uh, back and forth through to different points in time uh, in his life. Um, and they try to explain this scientifically. They bring a doctor in, um, who, who sort of gives it sort of this genetic reason for the, for this happening. But basically, you know, it's telling this story about a man who meets the girl that he falls in loves and marries when he's a middle-aged man and she's just a young child. And then their sort of encounters at different points in time. And because it plays with this concept of sort of linearity, 
you would think that the film itself is going to be structured in a way that, you know, takes advantage of that. And unfortunately, it, it really doesn't. Um, I, I would have thought that because the film, it takes a very sort of straightforward narrative approach. It doesn't really try to play with um, the, these breaks in linearity and with, with the main character's life um, in any great, in any great sort, sort of interesting manner. I would say it's it's fairly straightforward and from the get-go you're sort of following along with Henry and if because Henry's living his life linearly it's just that he vanishes from one time period and ends up in another time period but it's still within sort of the you know some somewhat of the the, the span of his life so he's not like going back to the 1800s or anything like this and he he ends up usually getting drawn towards key areas that are related to significant events. So he, he, you know, will keep bumping into people that he knows. Um, but the problem is, is that when he does these little trips, when he gets pulled back to these, these different spots, um, he gets pulled back, but his clothes don't. So anywhere he shows up, he shows up naked, <laughs> which can be problematic. Um, you know, he, he'll get arrested by the police. People will come after him thinking he's a pervert. And so he's basically always on the run whenever he gets pulled through and after time you know some some of his friends and his girlfriend who later becomes his wife uh, they all get to know his condition and they they sort of set up contingencies to sort of help and um, he because he comes back when he's older he can tell uh, people you know certain things that are going to happen so that they can be prepared for them but at its core it's basically trying to tell a relationship story uh, between a woman who's living her life linearly and a man who sort of comes in and out of her life at different periods. Um, and so it's sort of that un the unpredictable nature of that relationship that gives them tensions. And there's some, there's some aspects of the sci-fi that are, are called into question. Um, for example, that at, at one point, you know, as the relationship goes forward, they want to have a baby um, but then, uh, they find out that the baby may be carrying the genes and, and shifting out of the body while it's still a fetus. Um, oh. and so she's basically having miscarriages all the time. So I have to figure out a way to, you know, are they going to be able to, to have children because of this condition? Um, but I think that if they would have stuck with one perspective, if they would have, because, because his, his wife, Claire, uh, who's played by Rachel McAdams, if they could have shown the entire thing from her perspective, um, or they could have shown the entire thing from Henry's perspective uh, as he goes through his life linearly, and then he sort of jumps around at any given moment that he can't control, uh, it might have come off as a bit more interesting. But because it sort of, it, it sort of the, 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 the storyline shifts off, it'll follow Henry for a while, and then it'll stick with Claire as she meets older and younger versions of Henry. Um, and then it totally omits some things and I haven't read, I have the book, but I haven't read the book and the book may, may clarify this, but there are like whole aspects cause he, he doesn't start time traveling, um, until he's, uh, he's a young boy, like age seven or eight. And, but then when you meet him later in the story, he's already in college. So with this condition, it's never clear. How does he, how does he get through school? Um, and the times that he does sort of, uh, disappear 
Um, it's never when he's in a really crowded area. It's usually when he's off by himself somewhere. So it's just there there are some conveniences that are in place, uh, at least for the cinematic version of the story. They may be addressed in the book, but I, I haven't read the book, so I can't really can't really answer them. Oh, oh, I heard that um, the screenplay is written by the writer of Ghost. So how is the uh, the love story? Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not as touching as you'd think it would be. Um, I, I commented because uh, you know this is definitely a date film, so I went with my girlfriend, and um, we were commenting afterwards that we felt the best performances came from the kids um, because there there's there's a couple young actors, um, one playing Claire. Um, the, the, the main female heroine of the film. Um, and the, the, the girl that they get to play her when she's very young was very, very good. And then they've got a girl playing, um, their daughter in the future, who's very, very good. But the, between the two of them, I don't know if it was the chemistry or just the way that the, the narrative was sort of following them along and piecemeal. It just, I, I didn't really feel, you know, I didn't get the same sense of the connection between these two like I have in other sort of romantic love story films that remain as my favorites today, you know. Um, I just, it, it it wasn't as, it just wasn't quite, the connection wasn't quite there. It wasn't quite what I hoped it would be. Too bad because it looked like an intriguing movie, but of course when you start doing concepts like these, time traveling, and especially if someone who jumps around time, then... You're just getting yourself into a whole. Yeah, it's it's trouble. not it's not that it's a bad film, it's just not that it's overly great either. It it, it could have been better. Um, it's still something that I think that uh, you know a lot of people go and they'll like the story that it tells, and it's a it's a fairly good date movie. And if you try not to think too far too far into the science of it and the explanation that they sort of have to try and give uh, to make this story plausible. Um, you know, you'll, you'll come away fairly entertained for the most part. Um, but I'm just, it's, it's disappointing that they didn't do more with the narrative based on the fact that this condition would play so well to, um, sort of trying a new approach at the storytelling rather than what they do with it. to our Flying Buddha Picks of the Week, and this week we're going to try and base our picks around the holiday theme of Mid-Autumn Festival, which is coming up on the 3rd here, I believe, uh, of October. Um, so Mid-Autumn Festival is a pretty important time, uh, especially in Hong Kong. Families get together, um, they go out, they stay out late, look at the moon, uh, have a family dinner, eat moon cakes. And it's just generally, it's, I'd say it's kind of like the equivalent of Thanksgiving 
uh, in the States. It would be probably the nearest holiday to attribute it to. It was basically just a, fam a time for family gathering and, and eating and sort of hanging out. Have you gotten um, your mooncake, Paul? Uh, I'm not a big mooncake fan. I, I like Bing Pei, but I don't, um, the, the traditional mooncakes, I, I can't take too much of them. Um, so usually they, they buy a whole uh, box of different flavored Bing Pei's for me to eat. Um, and Bing Pei's, if you're not sure what those are, they're, they're not traditional mooncakes. They're like what they call uh, icy, icy like ice skin. cream. Yeah. And they've got ice cream versions and, and all different kinds of versions, but they're not considered the traditional uh, mooncakes. Yeah, I like mooncakes myself, but um, because well, I live alone, so it wouldn't make sense for me to buy a big box. Of yeah, mooncakes. so I just got the ice one. Here, and then I can say, oh, I follow. I got my mooncake. So well, anyway, our picks this week are going to be geared towards um, films that uh, touch on or centered sort of around uh, mid-autumn festival. Um, I know that I'm when it comes to holidays. I'm very much a movie person. I like, you know, every year around Christmas, I'm always watching uh, everything from the the Peanuts Christmas special to It's a Wonderful Life um, to things like White Christmas at Halloween. There are certain movies that I like to watch. Um, so I'm a person who really likes to associate certain movies with certain holidays, and then it sort of becomes an annual ritual. And so I was thinking, what movie, movies are there that, you know, especially for Hong Kong films that really... Uh, center around or think about um, mid-autumn festival. And there are a couple out there. And Kevin, do you have a pick you want to talk about? Yes. Uh, this week's pick, um, a fairly well-known movie. Um, it's Enhoist The Way We Are. If uh, anyone who's watching remembers, uh, the film ends on the mid-autumn festival uh, between the two families, the two family entities involved. And also what Enhui does in the film is to essentially show... Hong Kong then and now is that she shows a picture of the big mid-autumn festival, I guess, celebration that happens in Victoria Park here, people lighting up lanterns and stuff, and she also shows it happening today. So in a way, she's by taking this story that takes place in a small neighborhood in Tien Wai, she also uses the mid-autumn festival as a way to make the film actually about Hong Kong. And I thought it was a wonderful way to end the film. And the footage of the Mid-Autumn Festival was really fascinating because I'd never been to Victoria Park to celebrate Autumn. So it was really fascinating to see how it was in the past and actually even how it is now, how it is still held up. So my pick um, would be The Way We Are. Yeah, and that's a, a really good film. Um, very well, well uh, produced and directed and acted all around. Um, so I have three picks this week, and my picks are a little bit different from, from Kevin's. Uh, I've got a bit of an older pick, that is uh, My Sweetie, a Patrick Kong film. Uh, now, if you've read any of the reviews on this film, it's typically lambasted as mindless drivel, and, and you know, it is. Um, but I actually, for, for Patrick Kong films, I liked this one. It was one of his earlier films, primarily because this was before he started getting into the twist endings that he likes to throw in in his teenage dramas. This is sort of very simple, cheesy comedy, um, love triangle type of story. And towards the middle of the film, the the, the two key characters played by, uh, one character, Lo, played by uh, local DJ and sometimes film star Sammy, and uh, the character of, um, her name is Strong, and translated into English, 
uh, played by Steffi, uh, they end up going to Lowe's family's house to celebrate mid-autumn because uh, Steffi's character doesn't have any relatives in Hong Kong at the time. And it's at that point that they start to sort of uh, realize their uh, affections for each other. That's sort of the starting point, and then the film continues on from there. Um, so again, mindless cheese, but if that's the kind of thing you like, uh, this would be a good film to pick up for that period. The second pick I would recommend for if you want something a little bit more serious uh, and a lot more in-depth in terms of the story that it's trying to tell would be Clara Law's uh, Autumn Moon, which is the story about an immigrant named uh, from Japan named Tokyo who sort of comes to Hong Kong looking to buy things and consume and basically sort of find himself and in Asia a sense of Asia or Asianness that has been lost to him in, in Japan. And along the way, he meets a young girl named Pui Wai, uh, a young secondary school student who herself is going through her own sort of identity crisis because she's going to have to emigrate because the film takes place uh, prior to 1997. And the, th the two of them and the relationship with Pui Wai's grandmother and the film, similar to The Way We Are, builds towards an end that is around Mid-Autumn Festival. And for those who are really, really daring, uh, I'll also mention this, even though it's not a film, and that is the TV, the local TV drama um, Moonlight Resonance, which was very, very popular here in Hong Kong, and it's centered around uh, two families who are connected by um, a husband and father, and they run mooncake shops uh, and they actually the two families because one family is separated because the father left the, his his wife and and married again so the two families sort of compete uh, one is a huge mooncake chain and the other sort of a a simple small shop um, but that's been around for a long time that's very very popular it's very long and so i said it's only for those who are really looking to uh looking for a challenge it's it's a 40 episode series but it's very, very cheesy. Yeah, it's very, very well received locally. Had very good ratings for the time. And it goes through a period of several uh, mid autumn festivals throughout the course of the series. Um, and it, it's available, it's one of the few TV dramas that's available subtitled in English. So uh, for those non Chinese speakers and non Chinese readers out there who are looking to sort of get engaged in TV drama, uh, this is a pretty good one to sort of latch onto, and it's tied to the theme of mid-autumn. All right, well, that's going to wrap things up for our show this week. Uh, we'll be coming back next time to hopefully be able to talk about uh, the founding of a republic as well as other films that we're able to see between now and then. Um, as always, if you'd like to follow along, you can catch up with what we're doing with the show over at our website, www.kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T. And if you want to fo follow Kevin, Kevin, you, how can people keep up with all your various activities and film projects and things you're working on. Yes, you can all follow me on uh, Twitter at uh, the Golden Rock, one word. 
not to follow me on my blog, which I promise I will update soon. I promise. Uh, at get on the blog. Yes, get on the blog. Uh, you can also read my film reviews whenever um, our boss Kozo gets back from Japan on lovehpfilm.com. And you can also email me at uh, the golden rock one word at gmail.com. All right. So until then, we will wish you good viewing and happy National Day. And for those of you who are listening from somewhere in China, if you're listening at all. And for those of you who are in Hong Kong or other Asian countries, we'll wish you a happy mid-autumn festival or moon festival or mooncake festival or whatever you'd like to call it. And for everybody else, we'll see you next time. Yep, don't tell you Hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. In other words